0: Hey, it's Alex Asadi and welcome to episode 33 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Today we're going to continue our talk about exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. We're going to look at a few options that are out there right now that pay income to investors each and every single month. I had several people reach out to me online asking me to do this, so of course I'm happy to oblige. So for anyone who's tuning in for the first time, thanks for joining us. You are probably one of the many people from around the world who appreciate income-producing investments for any or maybe all of the following reasons. First, you can use the dividends to offset your expenses. In fact, some people even build it up to a point where they can live on their dividends altogether. Second, many income-producing investments can also go up in price, so while you're earning your passive income, you can eventually earn a capital gain too. Third, they exist in practically every industry, whether it's in real estate or energy or peer-to-peer lending, natural resources, financial services, or otherwise. And fourth, a lot of them can be purchased through a brokerage account for under $100. And That's the case with some of the ETFs that we're going to discuss today. So thus far, our podcast has covered real estate investment trusts, or REITs. We also spent a couple of months on mortgage lending. And we are now at investment funds, which is an umbrella that also includes ETFs. So let's take a few minutes to recap what we've discussed about them so far, which has been ever since episode 23. An investment fund is a business that raises capital from investors, and then it deploys that capital into other assets. It can be into real estate or oil and gas, clean energy, dividend stocks, venture capital deals, or pretty much whatever else you can think of. There are tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of investment funds out there. Some of them trade on the stock market, while others are private. In all cases, the investment fund will have a manager who will typically get paid a portion of the fund's assets under management, or AUM, and the manager's goal is always to produce a financial return on the investor's money. Now, the fund will generally have an objective or a specific mandate, like to produce monthly cash flow for shareholders. An income fund, an investment fund that aims to create income, will usually own assets that produce consistent revenue, so for that reason you won't see a lot of them with positions in land development projects or small-cap stocks. Instead, they'll own things like royalty companies or mortgages, rental properties, dividend stocks, and credit instruments. So far, we've talked about mortgage funds and real estate funds, which are obviously funds that invest in mortgages and in real estate. We've also discussed single-asset real estate companies, which are not technically funds, but they do raise money from investors to buy a single property. So instead of investing in maybe 50 different apartment buildings, the single asset real estate company might raise money from investors to finance one building. And then from there, we went on to exchange traded funds, which is where we are in this general segment, also known as ETFs, which are investment funds that trade on the stock market. So for example, a mortgage ETF would be a mortgage fund that can be purchased and sold through the stock market. An income ETF would be an investment fund that tries to generate cash flow for investors that trades on the stock market. Now, one of the defining features of ETFs is that they are generally not managed actively. The manager might rebalance the portfolio once every quarter, but it's otherwise basically left alone. And so for that reason, ETF fees are very low, usually when they're compared to other investment funds. And all of that takes us to where we are today, as we're about to go through a few different income-producing ETFs. But before we do so, let's get to a question from one of our listeners. If you've got something that you'd like me to discuss, please do let me know at alexzasadinet slash podcast. It does not have to relate to our current topic. Your question or your comments can be about literally anything. So today's question comes from Devin, who is in San Diego. He wrote me the following. Hey Alexis, I'm curious to know what you think of Fundrise and other websites alike. The idea of online crowdfunding sounds like a good idea for investors who may not have a lot of capital because it allows them to get involved in large-scale real estate projects that they otherwise couldn't and they can build some passive income. However, I was hoping you might be able to talk about some of the risks that are involved with these kinds of investments and what kinds of benefits they offer. Also, can you explain the difference between a REIT and an e-reit, so electronic REIT. So Devin, thanks for your question. I'm actually going to do a full episode on crowdfunding later on down the road. It's a really popular investment platform, and I think the industry will only grow. But for now, let's take a couple minutes to discuss. So for those who don't know what it is, real estate crowdfunding is pretty new. It's a way for real estate projects to raise money from investors. So basically, they use websites like fundrise.com, F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E.com to showcase their investment opportunity. And if investors like what they see, they can then buy in through the internet. From what I can tell, Fundrise usually manages their own projects, as opposed to letting other developers list their deals on their site. But RealtyShares.com, another uh, fundraising site, raises money for other real estate operators. So it really depends on how the crowdfunding platform is all set up. Now, the only difference with crowdfunding and the investments that we've already talked about on this podcast, like real estate investment trusts and real estate funds and single-asset real estate companies, is in the way that the money is raised from investors. So crowdfunding is obviously all done online. Instead of holding seminars and talking to you from across a desk, crowdfunding aims to convince investors through the internet— But at the end of the day, they are raising money for the same things that we've been talking about already. They're raising money for real estate investment trusts. They're raising money for real estate funds. They're raising money for single-asset real estate companies. So Fundrise.com and other crowdfunding platforms are really just advertising spaces. It's sort of like the difference between buying an iPhone online or going to the Apple store. Either way, you're paying money and you're getting the phone. It's just a matter of whether you did so through the internet or in person. So here's an example. Fundrise has a project called East Coast E REIT, but that's just the name that they use for marketing. The legal name of the project is Fundrise East Coast Opportunistic REIT LLC, and it comes with a 200-page legal document, which is called an offering circular. You can find it at fundrise.com/oc Before they can invest, investors are required to read it, or they at least have to acknowledge that they read it. Now the first line of that document says the following, Fundrise East Coast Opportunistic REIT LLC is a Delaware limited liability company formed to originate, invest in, and manage a diversified portfolio primarily consisting of investments in multifamily rental properties and development projects. Then you scroll down a little bit to paragraph number four, which is just a one-liner, And it says, we intend to continue to distribute our shares primarily through the Fundrise platform. So if you invest in this project, really you just invested in a REIT, but you discovered it through a crowdfunding platform. Instead of shaking hands with a broker and signing papers in that office, you just went on the internet and did it. That is literally the only difference. So for that reason, I don't have an opinion on crowdfunding in the same way that I don't have an opinion on sitting down with a financial advisor. It all depends on the investment that I'm being pitched. The one thing that I don't like about crowdfunding is that most people just don't realize all this. They don't understand that it's an advertising platform. In fact, to this day, I have never met anyone who knows this except for people who are in the industry. But I think that this is all going to change if it becomes a more common investment. So I appreciate you bringing this up uh, because this is something that I think a lot of our listeners are interested in uh, and hopefully they can find this information to be useful. Now, to answer your question about the difference between an e REIT and a REIT, there is no difference. A REIT is a legal status for a real estate business that comes with certain tax exemptions. An e REIT, on the other hand, is just something that Fundrise calls some of its investments. But a company is either a REIT or it's not a REIT. So again, uh, these are the semantics that they use for marketing, but it doesn't actually make a legal difference. You're either investing in a REIT, a real estate uh, fund, or a single-asset real estate company. How the money is raised can be through the internet, through a broker, or otherwise. So thanks for your questions, Devin. If you want to use some of the prior episodes to help explain crowdfunding investments, the first thing to do is to determine what kind of offering it is. So is it a REIT, real estate fund, or a single-asset real estate company? Then once you've made that determination, just go to alexasati.net slash podcast, where I list all the episodes and just find the ones that are relevant to the, uh, to the offering. As I said earlier, I'm also going to do an entire show on crowdfunding later on. Alright, so I've been doing a little bit of digging, and I found a few ETFs that I thought would be interesting to discuss on today's episode. I've included the name and the symbol of each of the following ETFs in the description of this podcast episode, so don't worry about trying to remember them. I just want to give you an idea of some of what's out there. So the first ETF that I want to look at is called the Super Income Preferred ETF, which hit the market in 2012. So this is offered by an American firm called Global X, and the dividend yield on an annualized basis is around 8.2% at the time that I'm recording this episode. So it is one of the highest yielding ETFs that I could find, and it has also paid a distribution for every single month of its existence. The Super Income Preferred ETF is designed to follow the S&P Enhanced Yield North American Preferred Stock Index. This is an index that tracks the 50 highest-yielding preferred stocks in the US and Canada, so really the ETF just tries to replicate its performance. Now, we've not yet discussed preferred stocks, so let me just give a quick description here. Basically, a preferred stock is a type of share that has a superior claim to a company's assets. So if a company was to go bankrupt, then preferred shareholders would have a prior claim over its assets and over its earnings when compared to common shareholders. In most cases, preferred stockholders also have to receive a dividend before any common shareholders do. But the downside is that preferred shares don't come with any voting rights. So right now, the super income preferred ETF has about $200 million of assets under management, and it charges a management fee of 0.58% per year. Its top holdings are GMAC Capital Trust, which is a subsidiary of Ally Financial. And it's also got Barclays Bank and Crown Castle, which is a communications REIT. So that company has over 40,000 cell towers and over 60,000 route miles of fiber. Super Income also owns stock in ING Bank and Verite, a $14 billion REIT with retail, restaurant, office, and industrial real estate assets. The ETF's top 10 holdings make up around 40% of its portfolio. So it's got a pretty heavy exposure to real estate and financial services companies. Next, there is the Enhanced Income Energy ETF, which is offered by Horizon, a Canadian firm. This one provides investors with exposure to an equally weighted portfolio of the largest and the most liquid Canadian energy stocks that are listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It then uses an options trading strategy called a Covered Call to try to produce additional income for its investors. So this ETF has been around since 2011, and it comes with a management fee of 0.65% per year. Its biggest holdings are Tourmaline Oil, Sonovas Energy, Arc Resources, Husky, and Encana, so basically oil and gas companies. And it's been paying out every month for the past seven years, but its distributions have also been very volatile, which is pretty much the nature of the oil and gas market. So if you want passive exposure to Canada's energy market while still earning income every month then this is the kind of ETF that would do that for you. There's also the iShares Diversified Monthly Income ETF, which is from BlackRock. This is one of the older ones out there. It was launched in 2005, and it also trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange. The Diversified Monthly Income ETF mainly invests in other iShares ETFs. The management fee is 0.55%. Now, because it's really just a fund that owns other funds, which obviously own other investments, It has way more holdings than the prior two. It has investments in over 5,400 different assets. And for that reason, the ETF's mandate is pretty broad. It aims to pay monthly income while also providing for modest growth potential. But investors are getting exposed to all sorts of stocks and bonds just because of how large its portfolio is. Personally, I would find an ETF like this to be difficult to place within my own portfolio. I like to make investments that have a more specific concentration, like in real estate or utilities, for example. Also, not that it really matters, but funds like these bother me a little bit because iShares is kind of double dipping. Not only do they charge management fees on the ETF, but then they earn management fees on all of the other ETF that this one invests in. Again, it's not a big deal and a lot of companies do this. It's called a fund of funds. It just is what it is. Another ETF that I wanted to look at is the Wisdom Tree U.S. High Dividend Fund. It's been around since 2006 and it has a management fee of just 0.38%. Now this ETF invests in companies that are worth at least $200 million and average daily trading volumes of at least $200,000 for the prior three months. The top 30% of these companies based on their dividend yield, so the highest 30% dividend yields, will make it into the index. You've probably heard of most of the businesses that Wisdom Tree US High Dividend owns. It's got positions in ExxonMobil, Verizon, AT&T, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Chevron. Now one thing that I found interesting about this ETF is how well diversified across industries it is. It's got a relatively equal exposure to consumer staples, healthcare, real estate, energy, utilities, information technology, and telecom. There's also the iShares Global Monthly Dividend Index ETF. This is another Canadian one that trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange, but it invests in high dividend paying companies from around the world, and it aims to track the Dow Jones Global Select Dividend Composite Index. The Global Monthly Dividend Index ETF was incepted in 2008, and it charges a management fee of 0.6%. It pays out monthly, and it's again pretty well diversified. As of right now, less than 3% of its holdings are invested in any single company. So this ETF has positions in AstraZeneca, which is a pharmaceutical company that's based out of the UK. As well, it owns stock in the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and in CenturyLink, which is a telecom business in Louisiana. All right, so we're going to leave it there for today. As you can see, the ETF landscape is very broad. There are over 2,800 of them, so there is something out there for everyone, especially for income-oriented investors like you and me. I have an email that goes out on uh, the first of every month, which will often talk about income-producing ETFs, and you can find that email at alexzasadinet slash email. In the next episode, we're going to go on another tangent and talk about something called an exchange-traded note, or ETN. This is a relatively new type of investment in the world of finance, and it was brought to market only in 2002. However, there's not going to be an episode of Income Investing next week. I'm not taking the week off. or going away. I'm just working on some new content for YouTube, which can take a little bit of time. But please do continue to send me your questions and your comments via alexzasadinet slash podcast. It's super helpful for me because it lets me know what people want to hear about. Also, I just got back onto Twitter. I realized that I've had an account for the past four years and I haven't logged on since 2014. So if you want to connect, you can just follow me at Alexis Asadi, or I guess Alexis underscore Asadi. I'll be posting material that I think will be helpful for income investors. Otherwise, thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk to you soon.